Hello, welcome to Secure Talk, your trusted source of information on the latest threats, trends, tools, and technology related to cybersecurity and compliance. Hello, everybody. Welcome to Secure Talk. My name is Mark Schreiner, and I'll be your host for this episode of Secure Talk. Today, we're going to be speaking to Mr. Ravid Laib, who's the VP of Product at Killa. And we're going to be talking about the current and expected future threat landscape, uh, some different elements related to cyber threat intelligence, fraud detection, uh, vulnerability intelligence, etc. cetera. Uh, but before we do that, I want to say hi to Raib. Uh, Ravid, how are you today? Hi, Mark. Very nice to meet you and great being here. I am perfectly fine. How are you? Pretty good. I'm just getting started. I'm in Arizona right now and it's, uh, what is it? Seven, seven in the morning. What time is it? Where are you at? And what time is it for you? <laughs> oh, wow. So, so I'm in Tel Aviv, Israel. It is 4 PM right now. Well, pretty much almost on exact opposite sides of the planet then. Um, exactly. how are, how are things in Tel Aviv? Are people, uh, nervous about what's going on up to the North of you there with the, you know, Russia and Ukraine? Um, I, I don't think that more so than usual. Um, we don't really feel, I think, the the effects like directly here. I will say that we have, like generally speaking in Israel, um, a whole lot of people whose families came from um, former USSR countries in the 90s. So a lot of people are involved like personally with families or friends being uh, back in Ukraine or back in Russia which is not great, I think, for a lot of people. Um, but really on the street, like day-to-day -day life, the general dialogue, I think that we have enough political issues of our own with an election <laughs> that we've had lately um, that I think people are pretty tied up in that at the moment. Yeah, it's amazing. We've got a, a, a lot of political issues of our own as well, but somehow we still manage to get uh, involved in, in other things around the world. That's all I'm going to say on the political front, though. Um, hey, so let's, let's talk a little bit about, uh, you know, as you, in your role as VP of product, I, I, I would think that, you know, there's a certain amount of negotiation that has to take place in terms of you get all these different feature requests or, hey, we need to develop this solution. We need to go in this way. And you and the other leadership team, the rest of the leadership team needs to kind of figure out really what makes sense for you as a company and for the market, for the company, you know, also in relation to the competition now and in the future. And so, and I, and I would think that one of the things that you look at is the current threat la landscape and then how you feel the threat landscape is going to evolve and what companies need to kind of, you know, keep up. So can you talk a little bit about what you're seeing as the current threat landscape and what, how do you think it's going to evolve over the next couple of years? Sure. Um, so that's a great question. I think just just as kind of a segue, um, you've mentioned that in product development, you need to take a lot of things into consideration. And I think that in our space, in cybersecurity, cyber threat intelligence specifically, that is even more so than your usual product development um, expectations <clears throat> and, sorry, and things that you would look at normally, uh, because you don't have just your users and your competitors and the market and where things things are going. You also have actual adversaries um, and like bad people that you want to monitor, bad people that you want to track, and they are actively working against you, not just your competitors um, trying to beat you or your users wanting more that you can do. And I think, as you've mentioned, that is why probably the threat landscape is probably the strongest influence that we have on what we do with product on product on where we took we take the roadmap because i think that a lot of the time what we see happening is that we'll have 
threat actors doing bad stuff and developing new kinds of markets and new kinds of relationships that we can monitor even before our clients and our users would be aware of that happening. So a lot of the times we're driven not by clients asking us to do something, but by bad actors doing bad stuff to try and target our clients. And then we need to adapt quickly and deliver things even before the organizations we try to help protect um, know that they even happen. So that's, I think, that that's a really good point that you that you brought in. Well, Generally I, speaking, I, I oh, just, yeah, sorry. Yeah, no, no, I was just gonna add on to what you said. I think that's a really good point that you brought in because I hadn't thought of it that way that instead of, you know, instead of talking to your customers and asking them what they need or looking at the competition, you're trying to figure out what these bad actors are, are doing or going to be doing. And that's how you're, you know, uh, kind of taking input and guidance, you know, it's probably not completely, but it's a big part of how you develop your product. Um, so no, I, I hadn't thought of it that way, but that's an awesome point, thank you. Yes, so I think for us, kind of the adversarial aspect of it is super important. Um, and I'll try to give an example that I think answers both the threat landscape stuff um, and generally, and, and also touches the point of how do we take that into consideration. So what we've seen lately, um, like what we observe happening in, in the threat landscape in general is basically that you can't really predict what bad actors will do tomorrow, mostly in terms of um, monetization, right? So the rise of ransomware, for example, that everyone, all of us has been talking about almost indefinitely for the past two, two years, that's not like a new technique. It's not a new type of attack. It's a new type of monetization. Uh, before you could get domain access on a machine, um, domain admin access, sorry, on a machine, and you maybe wouldn't have a lot to do with that, or you, like as an attacker, you'd use that to pivot off to something else. What ransomware brought to the table was just a very easy way to monetize that and take that thing that you have and make it into money at the attacker's hand. And no one could have really, or at least most people, could not have really predicted that before it actually started happening en masse around, um, say, late 2018, early 2019, with the uh, affiliate ransomware being introduced and so on. So in terms of threat landscape, I think that we, I wouldn't try to make any predictions as to what's the new big thing that bad, bad, that bad actors are going to try to do. However, what we do see happening and kind of a thread going between almost everything that we look at is kind of, I would say, um, servicization, automation and commodization of cybercrime goods and services. Now, that is that was a lot of zations and a lot of very big words, but I think um, really at the bottom line, what that actually means is that cyber criminals continue the vector that they've been taking for a good few years now, where they make what they do act, behave, and reflect legitimate business. So just like you had Netflix delivering DVDs like physically a good few years ago, and now you have digital catalogs that you can seamlessly browse and buy things from in an automated way, that's exactly what cyber criminals have been doing. Uh, we see that with, with uh, specialized stores that sell access to credentials obtained from infected machines. Uh, we see that happening with markets selling access to compromised servers like RDP servers that could be used either as, beach, as, as a beachhead in the network or as kind of a jump server to do some other bad stuff from. Um, and whereas a few years ago, you only had a few actors doing that, that becomes more and more and more of a trend. And that's because that helps cyber criminals monetize what they've done the easiest way possible. 
Now, if I dive specifically into an example from the recent year, um, we have added coverage in our platforms um, some time ago to a specific type of stores in the cybercrime financial ecosystem. Um, by the way, the cybercrime financial ecosystem is what a lot of vendors would refer to as the dark web, which, which we kind of try to avoid. Um, so we've started covering a good few stores in the underground ecosystem where cyber, where, where threat actors are monetizing access to um, business email accounts. So say you're a bad actor, you've got access to someone's email, maybe because you've stolen the credentials via phishing, or maybe because you've brute forced them, or maybe because you've infected the machine with, in, with an info stealer, and now you have the credentials, be it as it may, you now have access to, say, a CFO's, uh, uh, a CFO in a small medium enterprise. Um, you have access to their email box, and now that begs the question: as a bad actor, what are you now going to do with that? How do you uh, create to yourself a return on investment and turn it into actual money that you can then use? <coughs> Sorry. <coughs> Apologies. Sh should I take it a step back? Uh, no, I think I think you're good. Go ahead. Okay. Um, so that begs the question of of how do you actually make a profit from it? Now, traditionally, you would see actors doing things like business email compromise or use the email access to steal intellectual property and stuff along that these lines. However, what we see more and more actors doing now is saying, I don't care what someone will do with that. What I'm going to do is start an online store where I just offer these accesses to corporate emails for sale, and then people can come and buy them. Um, and I don't have to come with a business model for myself and start being really good at business email compromise or being really good at spear phishing. Instead, I'll just create a platform, like an e-commerce platform, when I, where I can sell that to other actors who might be interested in that. And that kind of really, that is a key note that we've been seeing for a very long time now, really culminating around the last two years, where you see more and more actors instead, or or at least on top of, becoming a part of a group, starting their own like small business or contributing to an existing business where they just sell the things that they have. That can be email access, as I mentioned, that can be credentials obtained from infected machines, that could be servers, that could be network accesses that are offered for sale for people who are interested in buying them. Um, and that really informs in our notion of how we monitor cyber threat intelligence and cybercrime specifically is that informs the notion of what organizations should do to gain better visibility of where they're exposed. And really, if I were to sum it up is, I don't necessarily know what bad actors will do tomorrow and how will that affect actual organizations. What I do see or what we do see as a company is more and more commodization of things that would not be a commodity or wouldn't have been a commodity three, four, five, six years ago. And basically what that gives threat actors is access to a wider catalog of digital goods they can buy. Now, again, instead of starting to attack an organization and get email access as an attacker like A to Z from yourself, you can just go and buy that access for from someone and then specialize in your own kind of specific business model. Does that make sense? Totally makes sense. And so what I'm hearing is this cyber crime ecosystem it's kind of like cybercrime as a service, and uh, and and you have people who specialize. I mean, it's just one more iteration of the Git economy, right? Where you've got these 
these people that they specialize in one point or one specific activity um, and they're really good at that and then instead of like going and taking it all the way through to the end they just capture those credentials or or whatever it is um, and then put them for sale so let me let me ask you this though have i mean it, it, to me because i you know I, I live in the bricks and in, in mortar world and and that's the way my mind works i think like if there's a shop over there selling you know uh, what do they call it uh, pirated dvds or some something illegal the police can just go shut it down because in order for customers to find that shop they've got to do some kind of advertising or word of mouth or something now when we go to this and i'm, I'm not sure if i got it correct you called it the cybercrime ecosystem correct okay when you go into that you know aka the dark web how are potential customers connecting with these people and why and why can't law enforcement interject themselves in there so that is a very good question um and really it has a very simple answer um they just advertise so that the areas of the internet in which cyber criminals operate um <clears throat> some of them at least really look like what the internet looked like uh, say 10 years ago you have like big um like splashy banners on top of a website, like you'd go into a Russian speaking forum, for example, and the forum at the top would have a sponsored ad by a credit card market that says like in bright, bold letters, best credit card mark out there, go and buy some stolen cards. And it like flashes in a lot of different colors. So really advertising of these kinds of services is an open secret, like, if you know where to go and assuming that you know like which forums uh, which forums exist out there which telegram channels to follow and which dedicated websites would be relevant within the ecosystem you would see a lot of publications you would see a lot of sponsored ads working within that specific ecosystem so knowing which services are out there is really not hard really not hard once you've ingrained yourself a tiny bit within that community and that's for a very good reason, because again, trying to make as big a profit as possible, um, being again, kind of mirrors of legitimate business, cyber criminals know that they really have to advertise. Like that's the only way you bring in clients. And I think that the, that, that also creates kind of a tension, right? Because on one hand, like on one hand, you're a bad person on the internet doing bad illegal stuff to hurt other people on, in the world. So that kind of, again, informs the notion of secrecy. Um, but on the other hand, you want to attract clients. And if you have a service that does something, but no one knows about it, so how would you make money? And I think that clashes a lot of the time. And what that really created is a situation in which once you're inside a community, um, you see people talking about mostly everything. Um, so you would see again advertisements for credit card shops and for account shops and people selling network access to compromised organizations um, and people openly recruiting or at least used to openly recruit for uh, ransomware as a service crews. That's really kind of all happens out there. And really for law enforcement, Knowing that these places exist, I don't think that's a technical challenge, right? Because again, once you're in a community, it's pretty easy to see what's happening. I think that there are different challenges. So uh, for example, 
one challenge that we are highly minded of or very mindful of when we do our day-to-day -day, uh, work here in Kela and I assume in other cyber threat intelligence companies as well, is the use of very specific nomenclature by cyber criminals. Um, so very, that like super, super uh, out there in Russian speaking communities where you would see people using terminology and language that you would not understand if you were to copy and paste it into Google Translate. Like cyber criminals have developed very specific nomenclature, weird ways to talk about stuff where if you don't know that culture, like the specific cyber criminal culture, <clears throat> it would be very hard or could be hard to understand what's happening even. And I think that is where traditional like intelligence people like the kind of personas that make up a lot of cyber threat intelligence companies um, and law enforcement services as well. Um, that's where we kind of um, have an advantage because a lot of us have done very similar things in prior careers. Me, for example, I come from the Israeli military intelligence, um, and that is not very different from a lot of stuff I do I've done before. I'm not fluent in Russian, I will say, but the notion of adversaries trying to use different specific nomenclature, um, either because they want to, and that's how they speak, or because they kind of try to um, confuse and, um, and obfuscate what they're trying to do, that's not a new notion. So. The way we deal with that specifically here, and I do know that in a lot of other companies as well, is we have fluent Russian-speaking uh, analysts and researchers on our teams who can help us navigate kind of the intricacies on what's of what's going on in these communities. So just to reiterate, I think that it's not a technical challenge of knowing what's out there, um, but we have two different challenges. Again, first one, is that understanding the nomenclature, understanding what's happening, um, but also um, coverage. Knowing that now someone offers um, access to a service that sells compromised credentials is not necessarily enough to do something with that. Um, because taking down websites on the internet in 2022 is not always easy, but also not always effective. So let's say that again, you track a domain that the bad actor uses and you get the domain blacklisted from the ISP. So, okay, so, so they'll just go and start a new domain and a new domain and a new domain and a new domain after it. Um, so a lot of times playing kind of the cat and mouse game um, is not super helpful for law enforcement. And in terms of coverage, what you would like to do a lot of times at least is to either kind of have that service still available so you can see what's going inside it and at least inform organizations that they've been impacted. Or what one thing you can do as well is, that, is just try and look into the actors behind it. So not the website, but the actors that run it, their TTPs, how do they do things? And as we all know, I think from a lot of CTI publications, kind of the, um, kind of the, the holy grail, which is attribution, like identifying the real person behind a service. Now, granted, that's not always effective as well. Um, you have people who reside in countries that do not necessarily have um, any sort of an agreement with um, other countries in the world where uh, even if you know for a fact or you have a lot of evidence that a certain individual is specifically connected to a cybercrime operation, um, so what? That wouldn't necessarily help you detain them or like physically, kinetically affect their existence in the world in one way or another, um, which I think for law enforcement is a bit confusing at times. You know, if there are any 
aspiring cyber criminals out there listening to this, <laughs> um, you, you're not doing much to discourage them. <laughs> but uh, uh, so hey, go ahead. No, I, I think um, for good or worse, that's kind of that's the fact of the that's the fact of the world. Attribution is hard. Um, disrupting cybercrime is hard, at least from a physical point of view. I do think that we have seen a string of so attribution is hard. Affecting cybercriminals in the physical realm in the physical realm uh, in which we live is hard. It doesn't mean, however, that there are no effects that could that could be done. Um, we have seen a lot of cyber cyber criminal operations dismantled even if their owners and the people like the physical flesh and blood people behind them are still out there. Uh, one example that comes to mind that I think was super interesting is the Gluptoba. I, I don't know if I'm even pronouncing it right, uh, but the Gluptoba or Gluptoba botnet um, dismantled at least in part or very, very significantly disrupted by Google um, and like in, in, a, in a big coordinated action around a year ago. So I wouldn't say that um, there is a reason to be happy about being a cyber criminal. Um, even if you won't be detained, your business hopefully will be disrupted and you won't have a good time. Um, and hopefully, as we do see happening, at least in bits and bytes, not everything is published, of course, we do see some successes in people are like being detained, being arrested, and being physically affected and paying the price for being a bad person on the internet. Well, let's uh, step away from the law enforcement side for a second and look over at, you know, how you help your customers. So I'm assuming that, you know, you have a couple of different ways. You could identify vulnerabilities in advance, or if you're out there in these, uh, the cyber, excuse me, cyber crime ecosystem, and if you see that, uh, hey, you know, these, these credentials have been compromised and they're for sale in this ecosystem, um, you can alert your customer. Is that how it works? Very much correct. Um, like in, in a nutshell, that's exactly it. The way we look at what we do is kind of to extend the notion of what is commonly referred to in the industry as attack surface management or attack surface discovery or like the notion of attack surface really. So mostly in the industry, in cybersecurity, in cyber threat intelligence, you see people or you hear people talking about attack surface management as kind of a technical thing, right? So you say, oh, you should scan your network or go to solutions that show you how what your network looks like because that's what cyber criminals do as well. So you go to a network crawler and look at open ports because cyber criminals do that. So, and, and that is super important. Right, like knowing what you look like technically, um, <clears throat> exposed banners that you might have, exposed vulnerabilities, open ports, stuff from the kind of classic attack surface um, domain. That's super important and super relevant. What in, in concept, what, what we're trying to bring to the table is kind of an extension to that. So attack surface is not just the technical assets that you're exposing to the internet. Attack surface is anything that attackers can see about your organization. So that includes the credentials, that includes your employees that have been infected with info stealers and have leaked unknowingly credentials and sensitive information to the internet. That also includes, again, as mentioned before, your um, access to your email accounts, which is being monetized, access to servers that have anything to do with you or your supply chain. Um, and really what we're going for is giving a more holistic view 
of what an organization looks like, not just from the technical perspective of what your network is structured like and what can bad guys see about your DNS, but also what they can see about different assets that you might have. Again, employees, credentials, databases, um, things that are more soft and not as technical, but are super useful to, to threat actors at the end of the day. So expand that notion and really understand what do people <coughs> sorry, what do threat actors look when they uh, what do threat actors see when they look at you, not just in form of a network graph. Um, so that's kind of the bottom line for everything that we're trying to do. And that also includes some, I would say, uh, creative interpretations to to what that means. So for example, um, um, again, seeing threat actors offering access to an unidentified or an unnamed network of a company within the sector of a specific organization, informing organizations on what's happening is contributing to them knowing their attack surface better um, or knowing at least kind of, so sorry, I've, I've got lost there. Let me take it a like a minute back. Um, I've just had a phone call which distracted me for a second, sorry. No so basically what we're trying to do is to expand the notion of attack surface a bit and not just have organizations look at their technical indicators of what their network looks like from the internet, but really what they look like as an organization. So that includes things that bad actors know about you that are shared in forums, credentials that belong to you that are shared in markets, your supply chain and how it's viewed. Maybe one of your suppliers was infected <clears throat> and extorted with a ransomware, which might affect what uh, threat actors now know about you because your files have leaked through that attack. Um, so we're trying to look holistically at what bad actors look at when they try to find attack opportunities um, and kind of integrate that into what we do. So that really goes on the whole spectrum of attack surface from also doing these technical things um, and giving you an understanding of what your DNS and your servers and like your network looks like on the internet, but also augmenting and enriching that with curated intelligence, like more proprietary software intelligence that we glean from our sources, like everything I've talked about so far, credentials and emails and servers that have been compromised and so on. So, so how do you do that? I'm assuming you so, have some kind of automated, um, I mean, you can't just out there, uh, you know, poking around uh, on an individual basis. So, so how does the tool work? So very much correct. Um, I think at, at the heart of our technology, and really the heart of what we do and do well, I would say, although I'm biased as a company, <laughs> is we develop um, collection methods. So before we have fancy user interfaces and APIs that allow our users to do stuff, um, Really, the core technology is collectors, fully automated collectors that we've been building for about eight years now um, since we've started since we've started doing cyber threat intelligence. And these collectors are good at one thing, which is going into a website like a user, like a human being would um, extract stuff from that website and bring them back to us. So. Basically, that could be targeted at forums, and then we extract all the posts that could be ex uh, targeted at data leak sites and blogs maintained by ransomware operators, and then we can bring back leaked files and names of victims and so on. That could be targeted at, for example, um, 
like I've said before, markets that sell credentials obtained from info stealers, and then we bring that back. So really the basis of everything is automated collection from a wide variety of cybercrime sources. On top of that, we have <coughs> we have structuring and processing of the data <clears throat> to extract observables from it and to extract and mine entities from it. Um, and from there, um, we have detection. So basically, our users go into our platforms and they can create the rule set on which they want to be alerted. So say I'm an organization, I want to be alerted on credentials for this domain, so domain A and domain B that I own, mentioned in credential markets. I want to be alerted on that particular string that I use as honey as a honey token in all of my um in, in my code against ransomware blogs, so I know if my code has been leaked and so on. So these are, I think, like kind of the three main tiers to our services. Collection, which is automated and scalable and really the basis of everything that we do. Structuring and processing, which takes all of the raw data that we've collected and chops and dices it into something that is much more easily digested by users. And the detection part of it, which which helps users and our clients essentially find the intelligence that they would like to use to defend themselves um, in a more efficient way. Okay, so once you get the intelligence, I mean, you know, let's just say that hey, we found out these credentials are compromised, or uh, somebody's trying to sell some information about my organization in this uh, cyber crime ecosystem. At that point, you need like a human in the loop, right? Somebody that's going to say, "Okay, I've got the intelligence. Um, how how relevant is this, and how what what do we do to follow up?" Do you do you provide that as a service as well, or do you coach your customers on best practices, or do you just give them the report and then they've got to figure things out? So, very good question, and and the real business challenge um, that I think we've had throughout the years. So we've started, I think, as a lot of small, like bootstrapped, agile companies do. We've started by doing things manually, um, and we've started by creating alerts and then have a human vet the alerts, understand what would be the remediation, and talk to a client about what they should do, and kind of provide managed services. Over time, we st we've started taking the knowledge that we now have because we've done that manually and move it upstream, move it to um, ways that we could infer severity and credibility in a fully automated way within the detection phase that I mentioned before. And basically take a lot of the um, repetitive tasks that humans would do, like analysts on our end, and make the platform do them at least to an extent. And then focus less on managed services for alerts, but on providing, if needed, professional services for triage and for enrichment and for incident response and for giving our clients more context on the threats and alerts that matter. Um, so we don't have a lot of human hands on keyboards dealing with the with the intelligence. Right now, mo mostly everything flows fully automated. Um, we do have, as part of the business model, a way for our clients to engage our professional services team. Um, but for a lot of clients, it's not necessarily needed. Um, so, like, we can have an automated pipeline that says, like, yeah, once a day, alert me whenever my credentials um, have exposed, were exposed in third party breaches, and include plain text passwords. You can create kind of this rule that works. Um, that makes sense for you as an organization because then you know at the end of the pipeline 
that what you need to do is take these usernames and, for example, going to the most obvious um, part of that, um, <clears throat> have their password have, be resetted. Um, so a lot of that could be done automatically. Um, I, I wouldn't say that still we're in like full automation. I think that a lot of vendors talk about machine learning and classification, a lot of like very uh, fancy stuff, stuff on top of the data. Um, I would say that sometimes you would need um, like uh, subject matter expert, experts or analysts or someone to help you operationalize the intelligence. However, most of the time it would be covered by the automation that we have right now. And I think most importantly, by integrations, which is something that a lot of our clients use. Um, so you wouldn't just bring the data back to the platform, but you could take that if you integrate one of our products with a SOAR maybe that you're using internally. So you could integrate everything and have the SOAR do the work for you, which I think is a solution that a lot of our clients and a lot of organizations in the market are headed for anyway at the moment. So a lot of organizations are headed towards kind of a centralized pipeline within the organization that manages everything. And then we could just plug into that um, instead of just bringing more and more and more human hands on keyboards to the table. That's that's interesting. And I, and I want to come back to, you know, your uh, the profile of your clients and, you know, what's the sweet spot for your offering uh, in a second. But first off, I, when I went through your website, I noticed that, you know, you, you, obviously your platform provides a lot of different services, uh, cyber threat intelligence, fraud detection, law enforcement support. Uh, one of the things you mentioned is vulnerability intelligence. And this is something that I'm, I'm actually uh, quite interested in these days. And when you're okay, just let me let me make sure that we're defining uh, vulnerability intelligence in the same manner. When I think of vulnerability <clears throat> intelligence, it's like, oh, uh, you know, Mac OS has a no, new known vulnerability, and there's no patch, or there is a patch. Here's the patch, that kind of thing, right? Um, is is that the same? When you talk about vulnerability intelligence, are we talking about the same thing? So yes and no. I okay. think that when we talk about uh, vulnerability intelligence, we mostly talk about contextualization, um, and that goes a lot back to informing the, the uh, sorry, the attack surface uh, uh, module that we've talked about before. So for example, when we provide an attack surface alert on an exposed server that leaks a service, um, like a service banner, what we want to do is to enrich that and make sure that you only need to take care of that and you only be alerted if, um, in terms of vulnerability intelligence, we see something that's actionable there. And we won't just alert you on any exposed server, but on servers that have um, relevant or contextualized vulnerabilities residing in the information that we're seeing. So that's one way we look at vulnerability intelligence. Another way is that within our products, uh, we can provide dedicated um, feeds or queries that give our users kind of an understanding on how a specific vulnerability is now being discussed or mentioned or leveraged by attackers as seen via our collections. So I think that when we talk about vulnerability intelligence, you have a lot of different roads, like a lot of, <clears throat> a lot of different ways that you can take. One of them, which is something that a lot of vendors do, at least some vendors do in our market, and that I would say that could bring value, is kind of a platform that stores 
the latest vulnerabilities for you um, and shows you like more scoring on top of CVSS or NVD, which a lot of people would argue are not enough. Um, we don't take that necessarily in that direction, rather than vulnerability intelligence is ingrained to some of our flows in the platform. For example, a target surface management is built on vulnerability intelligence, as well as you can use our products and we push like intelligence into our products that talks about trending in uh, vulnerabilities, that talks about campaigns using specific interesting vulnerabilities to help our clients be more informed about what's happening out there. And a lot of times that comes down to a very specific point where you see like a new vulnerability being released and two days after you see in specific cybercrime communities, actors already sharing POCs. So that really closes the circle and tells you, oh, that's not just another CVE out of 100 that came out this week. That's the one that I should actually pay attention to because threat actors have paid attention to that as well. So I think that also kind of ties back to what, have, what we've talked about um, with a more holistic attack surface view is also knowing what adversaries know not just about you, but about vulnerabilities and about tools that might be that might be leveraged against you. Um, so that's kind of where we focus within the vulnerability intelligence space. Excellent. That that helps clarify a lot for me. Let me ask you. You know, tell me a little bit about uh, Kayla in terms of your global footprint and you know how how you go to market and what are your you know kind of target profile customers. Sure. So. I think Kela is a bit unique in the market. We're not the sole one, but we're um, one of a very, very few companies who are bootstrapped. Um, so we're, we're not a classic startup. We, we're not funded by VCs. Um, we don't have an external stakeholder doing, uh, like telling us what to do, which is sometimes nice, but sometimes hard because when you're a bootstrapped company, um, you grow organically. Um, which is also again can be good but can be a challenge. So right now we're a bit over I would I would say right now 80 people so 80. Um most of us are headquartered in Israel. We do have a um however a quite a significant um headcount relatively in the states in some parts of Europe and in APAC in a few specific countries. Um and that's also where most of our clientele or the client profile is based. Um Basically, because we're bootstrapped and because we've, we've been doing what we're doing, what we're doing for about seven or eight years now, um, it took us some time, some time to find our play, our place in the market. If you were to Google us and search us three, four years ago, you probably, you would probably find nothing at all about us. Um, so it took us really some time to find our pace, um, understand how the market works. Because again, we don't have a fancy VC helping us, or we don't really have. Um, funds that we can spill on sponsored publications because the money that we have goes into hiring the best talent so we can deliver the best product. Um, so that's kind of a bit about where we come from and how we came to being a vendor right now on that podcast, even though probably a lot of your listeners have not heard about us. Um, generally speaking, again, most of us are headquartered in Israel, especially the research and development. Um, and in terms of customer persona, I would say that really everyone, every organization, governmental, law enforcement, NGOs, corporates, everyone needs to some extent at least cyber threat intelligence um, because in today's day and age, um, 
<coughs> everyone's a target. We've talked about ransomware before and, and ransomware being such a good quote unquote um, way to monetize attacks just because it works on everyone. Um, there isn't a single organization who would love to be encrypted um, and would love to have their data, data exfiltrated or, or, or sold. So that's why it's such a good business model. And that is also, again, why everyone needs cyber threat intelligence. Um, however, the space being as it is, um, up until, say, maybe a year or two ago, you would see a lot of maturity and a lot of cooperation with cyber threat intelligence, mostly for big organizations, mostly for financial institutions and law enforcement. Um, and I think for a good few years, that was a very big part of our client base. Um, but lately, in the past two years, we've been focusing and succeeding on working more mid-market, so SMBs and SMEs, as in small, medium businesses, small, medium um, enterprises, um, with more lenient and easy access to our platforms, more focused on um, product-led growth, so doing free trials, like unmanaged free trials for some of our platforms, and trying to reach to users who might not be the classic uh, CTI profile, so like an ex-military person um, that knows the most sophisticated tools, we want to expand that notion a bit and provide easier intelligence and easier protection to smaller organizations as well. Um, I think that still probably the leading markets are the states, um, Western Europe, few specific countries within, um, and APEC, we have a big, 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 big presence in Japan. Um, that is probably kind of the center of our uh, APEC probably the center of our APEC operations, um, but also some other companies in you know, some other countries in the area as well, if that makes sense. Definitely. And your engagement model, is it, it, it basically uh, your target customers are searching for some type of cyber threat intelligence uh, and they, they're looking for platforms and then they would reach out to you, uh, ask for a trial, a demo or something like that? Um, yes, yeah, so, so that is fairly common. Um, We've really made a change internally, at least. We're still working on making that actually work in scale. Um, <clears throat> but we've been very much um, led by um, sales, say up until two years ago, where we'd had engagement where salespeople would go and reach out to clients just because we, were no, we weren't a very well-known company. So we'd go and hunt for clients and try to convince them to use our product, which I think everyone who has done B2B or, or B2E knows that that's hard, that's grinding work, um, very long sales cycles, takes time, very tolling, um, not fun. We've had successes, again, being bootstrapped and still being in existence for a long time means that we do have business coming in, um, but it, it, it wasn't hard, it wasn't really streamlined. So while getting better at sales, like a lot of small companies do, we also started investing more in in product-led growth, and we've created a funnel where if you read one of our publications or an article in which we've been mentioned or heard a, podca or heard a podcast in which I was rambling for an hour about cybercrime, um, <laughs> we, can go, we can then go and visit our website and register for a free trial in, on Darkbeast, one of our platforms, um, and we don't have necessarily to chase you um, because we just bring you into the product and hopefully you see for yourself that it works, that it could bring value to the organization, how it can be used, and then engagement goes from there. Um, 
So we've been investing a lot in that and in kind of more um, organic funnels that bring clients or prospects in. Um, we still, of course, do enterprise sales, but we try to make it work together. Uh, the way we view it, if we have better funnels that bring people to us, we can then focus sales sales on solving hard challenges with specific prospects and not go and chase every organization in the world because really we would probably be outchased by a lot of our competitors who are classic startups who have VC funding and who can invest in having like 10 times the amount of salespeople that we do. Um, and probably if you're a CISO of an SME or a big or a big enterprise uh, listening to us right now, probably your email box and your uh, phone are already exploding with a bunch of cyber threat intelligence vendors trying to sell you every tool in existence um, so we can empathize with the pain. Um, so we try to kind of pivot away from that and more into product-led growth, bringing pe people into the product, um, thought leadership, talking about stuff that we find interesting. Hopefully that works. Um, so that's kind of where we're at at the moment. Yeah, it makes it makes a lot of sense. And ha having spent most of my career on the sales business development leadership side, I got to say, you know, it's always better to get a, a warm inbound lead than to sit somebody on a it used to be a phone, but now it's typically LinkedIn messages or something like that and just blasting out to everybody. It's really, really challenging that way. Because as you said, everybody's getting blasted, um, tons of emails every day, tons of calls. Um, but when it comes the other way, when they're looking and then, you know, they, and if especially if they, they engage with the free trial and then you can have one of your people follow up, then makes a lot of sense, especially if they, if they need something custom or, you know, they, they, they need some tweaks, which is actually a good thing. Um, just a couple more questions. Sure. Walk me through, uh, you know, as, as much as you can, your pricing model, um, and then, um, and, and, and then if I was a CISO, um, why would I choose Caleb versus, as you mentioned, there are tons of other companies out there, many of them BC backed, many uh, already f further down the, uh, the maturity road. Why would I choose Caleb? Sure. So um, I'll speak a bit vaguely about the pricing, uh, the pricing That's model. Fine. Uh, product people don't really like to go into pricing a lot of times. Okay. <laughs> um, so generally speaking, we, we try to combine seat-based pricing with usage-based pricing. So for example, um, if you go into DarkBeast, the investigation engine that we, that we offer, um, what you would get is a specific amount of searches or queries you can do a day. Um, that is the easiest pricing that we can have. Um, and <clears throat> if we talk about monitoring, uh, services or monitoring products that we offer like intellect or radark most of the time we would provide kind of a custom package for a specific or a set amount of assets that the organization has in terms of attack surface and cybercrime intelligence monitoring um, and that would be that package and then you can multiply it or add different seats so the amount of users the amounts of teams and silos that you want to bring in um, that would kind of inform the pricing for the monitoring platforms. So for some, we have usage base, for some, we have seat base, if that makes sense. Totally makes sense. Um, and in terms of why should the CISO choose Kela, um, I would say really, I, I can talk a lot about how our intelligence is great and how our platforms are intuitive, but really every vendor would say that and a lot of them would be right, right? So I think really um, we're in the market where some of our competitors are 
great, like really good companies, great intelligence, super talented people all around, really. Um, it, I don't think personally that that's been the situation forever. I think that we have seen all of the market mature the last few years, um, and that's really fun to see. Like I'm, I think that us as a company and me specifically as a person, I don't have anything, I don't have a grudge against competitors. Like if someone tries to outperform me, if they succeed, amazing. They're probably super talented and then I can learn from them. Um, so I can talk about our intelligence being great. I do think that's true, but I don't necessarily think that that would convince anyone because everyone says that and a lot of people have something to show for that. I would say really um, for us, the fact that we're bootstrapped, the fact that we have a growing client base and we're a growing company, I think that speaks to itself. Um, when you don't rely on someone else's money um, and you need and you can grow, um, that tells you something about people actually buying the product, about the intelligence actually help, helping our users, um, and about us bringing value and bringing something to the table that other people, other organizations in the world are willing to pay for, which I would say is super important because it goes beyond the ability to buy AdWords so we pop up first and beyond our ability to know the right people to talk to in the media, which don't get me wrong, is super important. Um, but if you have a good PR firm and you have uh, like a good nice chunk of VC money, that is more accessible. When you're a bootstrapped company, and again, we're not the only one in the market. I would just like to say that and, and a shout out to other bootstrapped companies who have worked very hard on, on getting places. Um, when you're bootstrapped, you don't necessarily have that luxury and what you do has to speak for itself. Um, and I think that we're in a situation where we are in that place. However, more than everything, because we have a free trial, I, I would say to CISO, come play around with the product for two weeks and you'll probably see for yourself why you should choose us. Awesome. Hey, Ravid, thank you so much. Um, I, I could sit here and ask a lot more questions, but we're running up on our, on our one hour um, hard stop here. Um, that's a lot of great information and it sounds like Kayla is really, you know, I mean, it's amazing that you guys have bootstrapped this. Um, you have a presence in obviously in Israel, North America, Asia, um, you're in, you're growing. And I, I do like that product, uh, product driven growth strategy, um, having, you know, being on the West coast of the U S I've seen too much, too many times the, the marketing and PR lead. Uh, the vaporware lead and and the product fall behind and if the product is good and you're in the right market it's going to do well and i'm sure you guys are going to do it awesome um last last question uh, if people want to find more information about kayla or connect with you what's the best way to do that so we are available at k-la.com so that's k-e-l-a.com not the best domain we want to get something better done but you that's need that that's you definitely need a VC partner for those domain things, man. So. <laughs> <laughs> that's true. Uh, so we're available at k-la.com. I am available on Twitter at Ravid L. Um, so R-A-V-E-E-D-L. That's me. I'm also available on LinkedIn with the same name. So Ravid Lab, um, as well as the Kela LinkedIn profile. Oh, and of course, we have the Kela Twitter as well. Um, Intel by Kela. So Intel underscore by underscore Kela. Um, Come listen to what we have to say. Hopefully it will be interesting. Thank you so much, Ravi. You have a great uh, rest of 2022, okay? Thank you very much, Mark. Pleasure. 
Hello, welcome to Secure Talk, your trusted source of information on the latest threats, trends, tools, and technology related to cybersecurity and compliance. 